Coming up, author Beverly Gray joins Ileana in just a minute. Welcome to Popcorn Talk, featuring movie discussion, news, and interviews. Popcorn Talk. We talk movies. And now, it's the I Blame Dennis Hopper podcast, starring Ileana Douglas. Eavesdrop with Ileana as she interviews Hollywood's most prominent players about filmmaking, acting, and what really happens on the set of your favorite flicks and TV shows. Hello, everyone. It is Ileana Douglas. Good afternoon. I'm here with the I Blame Dennis Hopper podcast, my lovely co-host, Tamara Berg. Hi, everybody. Nice to see you. And uh, let's just get to it. Beverly Gray has spent... Hi. Almost a decade working in the film industry as a story editor for B-movie mogul Roger Corman. She's written several Hollywood books, including Roger Corman, an unauthorized biography of the godfather of indie filmmaking, Ron Howard from Mayberry to the Moon and beyond. And her latest book, which we're really excited to talk about, Seduced by Mrs. Robinson, How the Graduate Became the Touchstone of a Generation. It certainly did. Please welcome... Beverly Gray. Hi, Beverly. Hi, Hi. It's good to be here. It's good to good to have you here, and thanks so much for taking time. I know you're out promoting your book, so thanks for uh, including us. Um, we're we miss g- it. We're going to get to the graduate, but of course, I always I'm curious. Uh, before you saw the graduate, what, do you remember the first movie you saw and who took you to see it? I do remember it. I was five years old and I was about to start kindergarten and my mother announced to me that we were going to go with a a five-year-old boy and his mother and we were going to see a movie called Hans Christian Andersen. And since I knew that a five-year-old boy was coming along, I thought, well, that's got to be a cowboy movie because that's what boys want to see, right? So we went to the theater and, of course, didn't see a cowboy movie, but saw Danny Kaye in the musical Hans Christian Andersen. I loved that movie as a kid. I have never uh, gotten over it. Oh, in in what way did you never get over it? Just because it's so touching or Danny Kaye? Because it was sweet and it was Danny Kaye and it was music and it was color and it was big and. It was a very special time for me. It's funny. It's a beautiful movie, too. I, me- I, I remember having the record as a kid. Anywhere I wander. That's right. You wouldn't want to hear me sing, but yeah, I could sing all those songs. <laughs> you know, before we get too far in, I do yeah. want to just mention uh, lots of people listen to us on iTunes, but anybody who's li- watching on YouTube or is wondering, Beverly's oh. actually joining us via Skype today because she's got bazillions of interviews going on. That's right. She's very popular. So yes. yes. We've got you via For Skype. The- Thank the you. flavor of the moment. It's very cool. <laughs> I love it. So you, did you grow up liking movies and wanting to write about movies? How did, how did you uh, come to, to choose that as your career? Well, I grew up in Southern California, although I didn't have anybody in the movie industry. My family lived not terribly far away from 20th Century Fox, so we passed it all the time. And I was full of the glamour of that. My parents told me about MGM in its heyday. Mm. And in fact, a lot of the old movies I learned about were movies that my parents let me stay up late and watch. And what I realized years later, I, I wasn't a go-to-the-Sunday-matinee kind of kid. I was the one who was allowed to see certain special movies on TV, and those movies gave me my parents' worldview, I discovered. They were watching... Citizen Kane, and they were watching Gentleman's Agreement, and they were watching The Best Years of Our Lives. And looking back on it, 
those movies kind of formed my own social consciousness. Mm-hmm. Well, which is interesting is that we're going to get to graduate, but then graduate, in a sense, breaks that all open and it does changes movies uh, forever. Um, you also, uh, you were saying that and before we started, you, uh, you'd written the book on Roger Corman, and our friend Joe Dante said that you had uh, managed to capture uh, Roger Corman. How did that? You were his story editor. Yes, that's actually a pretty funny story. Sure, uh, I was. Even though I love movies, I was really interested in drama and the theater. And uh, in college, I realized I was not really cut out to be an actress. So I was an English major all the way. And what I started dreaming about was being a, an academic, a college professor of English in some ivy-covered cottage somewhere, college somewhere. Uh, that's what I thought I wanted to do. I wanted to do something literary and dignified. But while I was in grad school, I started, just for the fun of it, writing, I wanted to write theater reviews for the school paper, the UCLA Daily Bruin, but the editor of that section was a snob, and he didn't think I was really good enough to write about theater, so he sent me to the movies. And that's when I started going to movies, and because of that, when Roger Corman was looking for an assistant being Roger and loving fancy academic degrees and titles, he called up the head of Phi Beta Kappa on the UCLA campus and said, I'm looking for a bright young assistant. And the next thing I know, I was in his office and he was telling me that if I came to work for him, I'd have to read Siegfried Krakauer's Theory of Film. So I went home and I read Siegfried Krakauer's Theory of Film and wondered how that was going to fit in with the making of Candy Stripe Nurses. <laughs> uh, when I came to work for Roger, I kept waiting for this intellectual conversation that he had promised me we would have. And I waited and I waited. I waited for about a decade and it never happened. So that's one of my Roger Corman stories. That's so, I mean, did he have certain, as a, I mean, what did he look for? He always, you know, I, I heard it was always economy and storytelling, you know, those kind of cheap, low budget things. But what did he look for in a story? Like what grabbed him? Okay. He liked things that were exciting, obviously. He liked things that really moved. He certainly didn't want movies that were too long or too dull, He was okay with things that were a little bit offbeat as long as they could have marketable content by which he, of course, meant sex and violence. Right. Uh, Sex being nudity uh, and violence being bloodshed. And those things were very important to him. And he was great at knowing what would look good on the poster. So if right. you came to him with a great idea for a great poster, you could probably get a movie made. Um, and did you have any favorite films that you worked on when you were working with him? I worked on 170 movies. Oh, my God. So oh, I know. Goodness. So it's kind of hard oh. to have a favorite. Uh, I have many favorites. One of them I'm very proud of is I thought of the original twist ending for Death Race 2000. So uh, to, in some people's minds, that's a very big deal. That's a huge uh, deal. Uh, pardon me? Yeah, I said that's a big deal. And plus, you're cutting into my drive-in childhood of yes. death, death, <laughs> death Race 2000. It was right in my sweet spot of, of film, Dusk Till Dawn movie going at the drive-in. So Yes, 
Yes. And much later, I made movies like Carnosaur. I also worked on the one movie that he directed in later years, Frankenstein Unbound, and had all kinds of adventures. Working for Roger was never dull. And so what were some of the directors? I mean, I think we know some of them, but I'd love to hear because you then later wrote about Ron Howard. But who were some of the directors that you that you worked with that later went Well, I personally worked with, we've mentioned Joe Dante, who yes. was a trailer cutter back in, in that era and a very quiet, shy guy. Oh, I've got a good uh, Joe Dante story. Sure. He was a really quiet, kind of mousy <laughs> fellow. I hope he doesn't mind my saying that. <laughs> And after having cut a lot of trailers for Roger, he was elevated into the position of a director. And he told me that he realized that his personality wasn't going to work as a director, that he needed to be a little more strong and forceful, and that he was going to have to remake himself, which he did. And today, Joe Dante is capable of being the life of a party. I've seen him MC things. He's brilliant. Uh, he knows how to talk in a, in a big group. Uh, and he feels that he got that personality because Roger Corman gave him a chance. Wow. That's a great story. Like and who and who else? You, Ron Howard? You were, did you work? I didn't work with Ron Howard. Mm-hmm. That was not in my era. And my era was two different eras. But I worked with Paul Bartel, who made strange, wonderful movies like Eating Raul, yes. uh, the best movie about cannibalism ever made. Uh, who else? Oh, uh, Monty Hellman. Oh, I uh, love Monty Hellman. He was always yes. the bad guy. Monty Hellman, always the, you know, if ever he was in a movie, he's like the, the, 70s Dan Durie. Mm. He was always, always going to be the bad, uh, the bad one. And and then wasn't there a female director too? The Candy Stripe Nurses. Um, yes, uh, I'm trying to think of her name. Oh, uh, now I'm blanking on it. I'm th- there are th- Roger. That's an important thing that uh, to say about Roger is Roger promoted women. Uh, Roger also made a lot of movies in which women took their tops off. Mm. But Rob, if you were looking to get a start in the film industry and you were female, right. uh, as Gail Ann Hurd did, for example, a Cat Shea directed for Roger, but I'm trying to think of the one uh, that you mean, who, who did Candy Stripe Nurses. Uh, he, I know, I'm blanking on it, and I feel yes, terrible. Barbara but, something. Barbara, yeah. Yeah. But uh, Roger always said that uh, he loved hiring women because women were smarter, worked cheaper, and were more grateful. (laughs) Wow. I think that's so true. And did he appreciate your book? No. (laughs) Of course not. Well, after all Uh, of that... Roger tried very hard to hone in on the writing of my book, and I realized very early on that this was not a good thing because yeah. Roger had his fingers on a lot of people's oh. books, and I wanted to really write about Roger. So I wrote him a letter. after He, he asked me to uh, put in writing uh, that he could read my book in manuscript and remove anything he considered derogatory. Mm-hmm. Well, I had worked on his memoir, and I knew that this was not a good idea. So I wrote him this great letter. I'm very proud of it, in which I said, Roger, you've taught me so many things. I learned so much from you. I'm so grateful. But one of the most valuable lessons you ever taught me was the importance of artistic independence. And 
Yeah. I don't think he's really spoken to me since. But uh, it's, it's, it's always, an affectionate book and an honest book, and I'm proud of it. It's always tough. I started in show business as, as someone's assistant, and it it's, was one of the toughest things is to walk away from that either maternal or paternal uh, relationship, I think. Just yeah. FYI, IMDb has has Alan Holub directing Candy Stripe Nurses. Oh, um, you you are right. But there was one. Uh, I know. Barbara, Peter, Barbara Peters is the woman I'm thinking of. P e e t e r s. All right. Well, we've we have at least correctly uh, stated her because yes, I feel bad. Indeed. I should have okay. known her name. Um. So and then in so going from that to then wanting to to talk about the graduate. Do you remember the first time you saw the graduate? You know, I honestly don't, but I know what period in my life it was in. Uh, mm-hmm. The Graduate came out, of course, it's about to be 50 years old, came yes. out in Los Angeles and New York on December 21st, 1967. Wow. And wow. at that time, I was just coming back from a junior year abroad in Tokyo. Uh, and and I broke my leg seeing it over Thanksgiving break. So I was... Not the happiest of campers to be home and have a broken leg. Uh, But the graduate for me, as for so many people of my generation, as I was a senior in college, was a kind of a blueprint for us in a way, an explanation of what was wrong with our lives and why, much as we love them, our parents were not the way we wanted to go. We did not want to be our parents and our parents didn't quite seem to understand that. Mm-hmm. They they thought, at least my parents certainly thought that, you know, now that I was back from my adventure abroad, that now they were going to steer me toward law school and getting married and all sorts of good things. And it was the 60s. It was a time to break free that we, we all badly wanted to break free. Mm-hmm. And my two big rebellions were that I tried growing my hair, which was not a great success, and that I absolutely refused to go to law school. So I understood something of Benjamin Braddock's eagerness to have a life that was different from the one that had been foreordained for him by his parents. Right. And had you ever read the book? Uh, I've I've never read the book. Mm -mm. I have read the book now. Uh, The book is not the world's greatest book, but it does have some of those famous, famous scenes in it, like, Benjamin in a scuba suit in the bottom of his parents' mm. pool, yeah. and Benjamin on that bus with a young lady in a wedding gown who has just married somebody who isn't him, and they're heading into the unknown. So it's got some great stuff in it, that mm. novel, but it also has a leading man who's kind of baffling and kind of irritating, really, uh, who has been called a whiny pain in the fanny because he should be really happy about his life, and yet he's cranky as all get out, and there's no real clue as to why. So when Mike Nichols and producer Larry Terman got together to work on this film, they had to figure out what there was that was going to make this character appealing, not just a cranky person you'd like to shake, Mm -hmm. but someone you cared about. And in casting Dustin Hoffman, they, I think, managed the trick of finding somebody a very unlikely somebody that the audience would love. Yeah. Well, that, I mean, that, that becomes probably the most sort of revolutionary casting 
decision, which sets in motion, I think, you know, Pacino and De Niro and a whole set of leading men, too, you know. Yeah, I strongly believe that. And so did Dustin Hoffman. He said that this was the most courageous casting decision ever made. And it was so obvious to everyone, including Dustin Hoffman, that the person who should be playing this successful graduate who has been a campus hero in all kinds of ways, athletic as well as academic, should be this tall, strapping, blonde, Robert Redford type. Right. And that was certainly thought about, especially since Robert Redford had appeared for Mike Nichols in a very big Broadway hit, Mike Nichols' first Broadway Mm -hmm. uh, direction uh, in Barefoot in the Park. So it seemed as if this was going to be the obvious choice. And he remained, Robert Redford remained within uh, the, the, the realm of possibility. Uh, he was one of six people who were part of the final casting choices. Mm-hmm. But Mike Nichols just didn't feel he was right. And there's a, a legendary story. And I've never been entirely sure. I've heard it told all kinds of ways. And it makes you wonder if it's true. But it's a great story, which is that Robert Redford said to Mike Nichols, why don't you want to cast me? <laughs> And uh, Mike Nichols said, well, let me put it this way, Bob. What was the last time uh, that you struck out with a girl? And Redford Mm. said, "Uh, what do you mean? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, That's the story. But Dustin Hoffman does not come off as a Robert Redford. He's short. He's got a big nose. And what's disturbing to me, frankly, is the kind of press that was generated when he was cast in the role and the kind of comments made around Hollywood. He was referred to again and again in person and in print as that ugly boy. Wow. And I think actually that he's not ugly at all. I think he's really cute. Yeah. But they yeah. thought of him as ugly, but there is a Life magazine profile of him as the movie came out, which said something like this, a swarthy Pinocchio makes a wooden role real. Wow. Wow. And it said if Dustin Hoffman's face were his fortune, he would be living a life of poverty. And it went on and on along these lines. But a funny thing happened, even though people were coming up to Mike Nichols and saying, hey, great movie, but too bad you miscast the lead. But young people saw in Dustin Hoffman someone with whom they could identify Mm -hmm. and care about. And they took him to their hearts in a way that I think they would not have taken Robert Redford to their hearts in that same role. Right. Now, what's interesting about the part is that when you look at it, then you can't you can't help but then think, you know, uh, with Wes Anderson and Rushmore and so Mm -hmm. some of Noah Baumbach's movies, in some way, filmmakers following him have not. They can't get over Benjamin. You know, they keep making the same. They keep making the graduate. So why? That's really true. In fact, uh, apparently Talia Shire told uh, her son, Jason Schwartzman, when he was cast in Rushmore, she said she wanted him to see a few movies. And one of them was Harold and Lloyd, Harold and Maude, excuse me. And one was the graduate. And so there's kind of a direct line of descent Mm -hmm. in the from the filmmakers and from the actors. Yeah. And some of that, I think, also has to do with the style of it. But, but yes, something about Dustin Hoffman, he just galvanizes a certain personality that I think people find appealing in the same way that they find Catcher in the Rye appealing. 
Yes, I'm glad you mentioned Catcher in the Rye because that was one of the things that sold producer Larry Terman on this novel by this unknown guy. Uh, There was a review in the New York Times that didn't love the book, liked some things in it, and said, still Benjamin's an interesting guy, and it may be that one day people will talk about him in the same way they talk about Holden Caulfield in Catcher in the Rye. Mm -hmm. And when Larry Terman saw that reference, he said, bingo, I'm going to read that book. And Mike Nichols felt the same way. Everybody, of course, in Hollywood wants to make, would like to make Catcher in the Rye. Nobody can because J.D. Salinger, rightly or wrongly, doesn't want him to. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But they could make The Graduate. Uh, now, did you read uh, various screenplays? Did you read the the famous uh, Calder Willingham screenplay before Buck Henry got his hands on it? Have you seen any comparisons? I am glad you asked that. Nobody asks that. Uh, yes, I have read Calder Willingham's screenplays, and I am prepared to attest that they, this would not have worked. Uh, first of all, it was a matter of attitude. First of all, Calder Willingham, who was a successful novelist and, and screenwriter, hated this book, went around saying how much he hated this book. Uh, he said uh, this amateurish book, Uh, It's like trying to breathe life into a corpse. He really disliked it. And in trying to kind of sex it up in one way or another, he stuck in some things that I thought were simply dreadful. He stuck in some gay stereotypes. He stuck Mm -hmm. in, uh, oh, scenes where Mr. Robinson is is sprucing Elaine up for her date with Ben by painting her fingernails gold and dressing her in bikinis. He had really things that I would consider, uh, to use an elegant word, icky. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, and he absolutely insisted at the end when Ben's frantically running around trying to find out the location of Elaine's wedding, he imagined a scene in which Mrs. Robinson says that if Ben just hops in the sack with her one more time, she'll tell him. Because he said the wicked witch should have one more chance to uh, entice the prince. Hmm. And I think just in that very language he showed, he kind of missed out on something. And what he missed out on was the character of Mrs. Robinson, who is certainly has wicked witch qualities, but she's not a wicked witch. She's a very, very sad human lady. Mm -hmm. And he had no no acceptance of that fact. And I, I think he, he missed the boat in a, in a very large way. Yeah. Uh, um, okay. So then now let's get to Mrs. Robinson. So, yeah. so beautifully played by Anne Bancroft. And what's interesting about the movie is, as that as it's grown in popularity, obviously the relationship of Mrs. Robinson and Benjamin is also grown, you know, her whole, it, we put so much thought into it's not just like older woman, younger man. It, it's their whole, the whole sadness of her performance, mm. I think, is really beautiful. Mm-hmm. It, it is indeed. And, and what was fascinating to me in, in researching the book, I started talking to a whole lot of people, some of them rather famous people and some of them not famous at all people, about seeing The Graduate and had it somehow affected them. And one of the most interesting comments I got was from someone who's now a professor of history at UC Berkeley. And back in the day, she was a graduate student in Berkeley. She was a member of one of the first women's consciousness raising groups in Berkeley. She went to the meetings, 
And there were two or three other women, young women there who already were married, already had children. And she saw how they felt that somehow they were trapped. Somehow they were, had gotten into life on the wrong foot. And seeing the, their misery and watching the movie and seeing how a woman can get trapped into a domestic role and social uh, a sense of social propriety, because, of course, Mrs. Robinson had gotten married because she, in quotes, had to, which was the language of that time. Right. This woman said, I don't want that ever to be me. I don't want, yes, I want companionship. Yes, I want love, but I don't want that. Mm -hmm. I'm going to stand guard against that. Mm -hmm. And that's how she lived her life. Did you write about some of the conflicts that were happening behind the scenes? Because I know sometimes Anne Bancroft and Dustin Hoffman sort of butted heads in some of their improvs. I didn't read too much about that. I, it, you, you get sort of contradictory answers to things of that nature because I think I think she also thought he was fun and pretty neat, and he yeah. could be. Uh, he became a little difficult, I think, on the set. Uh, this isn't something she said, but it's something that one of the most interesting commentators is the man who was the film editor who's written a very interesting book and whose name escapes me right now. Uh, but... He could see uh, Dustin Hoffman, who started off rather scared and very humble, kind of evolving in the course of making this movie and becoming a little crankier and a little more difficult. So uh, uh, there was some tension there, surely. Well, yeah, I mean, obviously, I just think that the, the nature of their their relationship is it's very emotional. I mean, it, and also from, you know, the commentary that Nichols said, they spent a lot of time rehearsing and they really. Yes. Three weeks of rehearsal. Wow. That part's yeah. incredible. Um, and was Anne, and, and, and he used to uh, date Anne Bancroft briefly, which I thought was another little added. Interesting. Uh, Mike Nichols did. Yes. Right. Not, not Dustin Hoffman. Yes. I, was, I was confused Sorry. by that for one Sorry. second. Mike Nichols and Ann Bancroft. Annie, as he calls her. Uh, Sam Osteen. Yeah. Sam Osteen. Sam Osteen. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Great book. It's called Cut to the Chase. Oh, nice. Yeah. Um, and so let's talk about some of the, oh, the last thing I was going to say, anything about uh, any research about the but one of the casting ideas was Doris Day. That was just oh, yeah. another idea that's floated around. Is that really true? That is true. Uh, and I don't know if Mike Nichols was part of it, but early, early on, Lawrence Terman, who the producer who mm -hmm. um, optioned the book when nobody else was interested in it, uh, he loved the idea of casting against type. And he thought, what could be more interesting than taking somebody who's kind of America's sweetheart and who's Romantic comedies always showed her as the perky, plucky virgin. You know, wouldn't that be interesting to see her as Mrs. Robinson? So he sent her the novel to read, mm -hmm. and she has told the world in her memoir that she did not uh, want to do the part because it offended her values. Mm -hmm. But in fact, and, and Larry Terman is very insistent on that, she never received the book that her husband, uh, not the easiest guy in the world, Martin Melcher, a very controlling sort of a person, never gave her the book, that he made the decision oh. that this wasn't something that she could or should do, and he kept it away from her. Wow. So, But she was considered, so was Jean Moreau very briefly, this whole, 
you know, the French older woman and younger man kind of thing. She was thought about. Uh, one of my favorite stories from Mike Nichols concerns uh, Ava Gardner. He thought, wow, that would be interesting. And he went to see her and she was definitely interested. She was in her suite at some swanky New York hotel and she dismissed her entourage and said, I want to be alone with my director. Uh, and she was gorgeous. Apparently, he was, she was so gorgeous still that he was kind of weak in the knees. But <laughs> then she decided that she wanted to call up her friend Ernest Hemingway, who had been dead for about five years. So Mike Nichols kind of saw that she wasn't maybe quite up to playing right. a major role in his movie. Um, and then the, the, you know, this, I guess we have to mention too, how the style, the, the production design is, is just so iconic. Every element of it, mm. um, you know, Dick oh, Silver, it's, the it's production it's wonderful designer. to look at. It's funny. Someone asked me today, was the movie in black and white? And I said, no. And then I said, uh -oh. yes, because, uh, it's, it's designed all the decor and a lot of the clothing is black and white. Right. right. Uh, set against uh, the blue California sky and the blue California swimming pool. But he also did fantastic things with the camera and with point of view. And interestingly enough, the person who shot the movie, Robert Surtees, he was an old timer. He shot Ben-Hur. Uh, but fortunately, even though he was an old timer, he was very ready to try new things. And uh, you could, in this case, teach an old dog new tricks. He told his crew, he said, you guys better be on your toes because I bet we're going to be doing some crazy things here. And he loved it. Yeah. And uh, it's, there's some astonishingly interesting uh, visuals in that movie. Another reason it's inspired filmmakers from that generation to this. Yes. Also, the uh, ambiguous ending uh, on the bus where apparently that was just a, an accident, a kind of a happy accident. Yes, I love that. I love that, that uh, the, these characters, it was at the end of filming. As everyone knows, you don't film in sequence, but this was at the end of the filming. Everyone was exhausted. Dustin Hoffman, Catherine Ross were exhausted. Mike Nichols says to them very gruffly, we've blocked traffic for 20 miles around, and this is costing us a fortune, so get on the bus and laugh, goddammit. <laughs> and, uh, and they tried. They tried laughing, they clap their hands with glee, they beam at each other, and nobody says cut. In fact, it was Sam Osteen who was supposed to, as Mike Nichols' surrogate on the bus, was supposed to be cued to tell them to cut, and nobody said anything. Yeah. So yeah. the camera kept grinding and grinding, and their faces went through all of that confusion, disappointment, anxiety, they didn't know what was what. And Mike Nichols got into the editing room and said, that's the end. I didn't. Wow. I think we need and to have yet, that again. Young people tended not to see that doubt. They wanted the happily ever after. And they were roaring with laughter and cheers. Theaters erupted in the early days at the end of that movie. And nobody saw the kind of doubt that maybe an older viewer 
can't fail, uh, certainly can't miss. Yeah, no, it's a beautiful, it's a beautiful ending. Um, I know our time is limited. So a couple of the last questions I wanted to ask you were just about the price, the process of writing. Do you ever get stuck in your writing? And when you get stuck, what, what do you do? Oh, I've never had time to get stuck, <laughs> I think is the answer. I usually tend to have a, a shorter deadline than I would like. Uh-huh. And this this book had to come out for uh, the 50th anniversary. And so it was written in, uh, the first draft was written in less than a year. Fortunately, I had done a lot of research prior to that. And so I didn't get stuck. I had to just whip myself into shape and keep going. Um, and what was the biggest, was there anything that really surprised you in your research that, that comes across in the book, like any nugget? There's so much that surprised me, but one of the things is the wild and crazy character who wrote that original novel. And he was in many ways like a Benjamin Braddock. He was the same age. He uh, came up from an affluent Southern California, had gone off to the East Coast for college, come back to a lot of acclaim. Uh, So he might think of himself, although he didn't have the affair, he fantasized an affair that he didn't have uh, with an older woman. But having now written a book and made a movie sale, he became a very interesting character, one who decided he was uncomfortable with the whole idea of making money. He gave away his or he refused to accept his father's inheritance, inheritance from the estate of his father. When he got married, he insisted that he didn't want all those wedding presents and he made the guests buy them back again, which I don't think I would have been crazy about if I were a guest <laughs> having to purchase the chafing dish that I lovingly picked out. Uh, and he kept kept on giving things away so that at the point where he had a big movie sale, bought a nice house for himself to ride in and for his wife and for his growing family, then decided that was just a little bit too much and maybe a little bit too bourgeois, and he gave it to the Audubon Society. Uh, Then there was uh, The Graduate itself. Once the film came out, suddenly everyone wanted to read the novel. It was sold in very big numbers. And he was, again, making money, decided that he'd much rather give the copyright to the Anti-Defamation League of Brene Brith. So that's what he did, uh, and they're happy to have it. That's Mm -hmm. where it is today. And he and his wife kept giving things away and giving things away, and then they could never figure out why they were broke. (laughs) Oh, wow. (laughs) So they're off in England at this point, uh, living in really reduced circumstances, having to occasionally find shelter in Salvation Army shelters, a very interesting duo. So maybe I uh, would rather not think so, but maybe this would be the fate of a Benjamin Braddock uh, who went off into the world to live differently. That's true. Wow. He, and his, he and his wife on the bus. Now you, they, yeah. en- they ended up in Paris. Um, well, anyway, Beverly, thank you so much for uh, being with us and uh, breaking down uh, The Graduate and everybody can get the book, Seduced by Mrs. Robinson. When is it? It's out now as a great it Christmas. It came out this week and it was on a lot of best of the month and best oh, of the great. year list. So I'm, I'm thrilled about that. Also, uh, Ileana, you might be interested that sure. I, 
uh, write a blog called Beverly and Movie Land, okay. where I write about movies, movie making, and growing up Hollywood adjacent. Uh, some things that are close to your own heart, I believe. I My just favorite. wrote about being there because you inspired me to see it. Oh, good. I'm so glad. So Beverly's website is beverlygray.com, and she's on Twitter at Bev underscore Movieland. Thank you so much, Beverly. We can't wait to read your book. Yes, thank you, this Beverly. This has been so much fun. I can't wait to see what I look like. <laughs> <laughs> you look fantastic. You do. You look great. Oh. Here's to you, Mrs. Robinson. <laughs> Thank you, and Beverly. And here's to you, Miss Douglas. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. So Beverly was fascinating, right? Yeah, she was great. I mean, what's so interesting about the movie coming up on the 50th anniversary is just as Mike Nichols is a director, I mean, one, one of the things that you can watch it again and again is is kind of everything came together in terms of the script by Buck Henry and yep. then the visual storytelling. You know, from the minute you see the movie, he says he, he likes to state the theme of the film. And so when you see Benjamin in the airplane and the announcer says, uh, yeah. we, we begin our descent yes, into Los Angeles. Exactly. He feels he has stated the theme. And so he restates the theme. And he, even though the viewer doesn't need to know that, he knows that. Right. So he's in the bottom of the pool or... Uh, he's behind the fish tank, you know, um, the animal print with the, right. you know, with Anne Bancroft. Another thing that's interesting about the movie is that, you know, he had time. Like he talks about the amount of time. They had months and months. Mm -hmm. He knew he was going to do the movie. But they had months of time where somebody could come to you and say, what do you think about the clothes? What do right. you think about this? What do you think about the hair? Right. What do you think about the location? Yeah. And I wonder, again... That's what makes it so perfect is that we, you know, we just, we don't have the time. A director doesn't have the time to put those elements in to find the right animal print, right? you know, outfit, um, th those kind of things. I mean, down to, you know, some of the production design in the, you know, in the film, down yeah. to the finding the right red Alfa Romeo. Right, right. Um, well, and do you, I'm... I, it sounds like what you're saying is that all of these elements and the fact that they're so well thought out has everything to do with the fact that the movie became a classic, I mean, and it still stands up today, yes? Yes, I feel that the other magical thing that Mike Nichols always says is, he says a movie is one thing and then it's something else. Mm -hmm. Like, he's making the movie, but then something magical kind of comes out of it. And right. I think that it's that something else quality, which is the the ambiguous ending, which is I think it's got some of Mike Nichols' life in it. It's mm -hmm. some of Dustin Hoffman, some mm -hmm. of Ann Bancroft's, you know. Um, and then putting out in, into society. It was the only movie that came out that actually didn't really mention the Vietnam War. And that was, you know, it even though it it's taking place. Yeah, there was like one little flyer off on the side in one of the hallways they were walking around in Berkeley. I remember yeah, that. which was it's a different segment of society yeah. where, you know, that the Vietnam War hasn't hasn't, you know, affected it. Right. But I think that there's a kind of an angst in it that mm -hmm. every filmmaker he captured something, the mournful quality of the Simon and Garfunkel. Yes. It, oh, the music was so. Yeah. Key. The the music hit, you know, the sweet spot and other people have tried to put, he puts the music in there 
And it, it's sort of Dustin Hoffman's voice, his sad, mournful, you know, sound of silence and things. And so many other filmmakers have tried to do that, mm-hmm. not quite as successfully. And what I'm always fascinated by was this, some of the things I was asking her. Why have we not moved on from The Graduate? Why can't we break free from this adult angst? Everyone has it all the time. (laughs) (laughs) Adult angst in beautiful production design with an Alfa Romeo. I mean, there's something very romantic about this idea that, you know, because he does have this redemption. He, even though he has this terrible affair affair and is all screwed up, he does end up with the girl Mm -hmm. of his dreams. Mm -hmm. But for how long? <laughs> I don't know. They seem like they're pretty happy. I, think I don't know. I think they're sticking together, but you know, yeah. there, is, there there could be the idea that they're not. Now, this was um, Mike Nichols' di- directorial debut, right? No, it's his actually his second film. Oh, okay. He did uh, he his first film was uh, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf? Oh. And I, I always thought it was interesting is he's working with Elizabeth Taylor, mm. and then you could kind of see the Anne Bancroft character. There's sort of a little bit of parallels mm-hmm. to um, to that kind of a you know woman. I mean, not exactly, but there's some similarities. But he has such a deft hand. I mean, I don't think anybody had as deft a hand as Mike Nichols. Facile. He just is facile. He was so literate. Yes. He, he knew exactly what he wanted to do with the camera. Um, he was. Th- using... That was actually what I was going to ask. Is mm-hmm. ha- I mean, how do you think? Is it he, clearly he was brilliant? I mean, there's no question about yeah. that. When, you know, he as a writer, as a gets performer, gets a mention in my book. Uh, yes, he does. <laughs> um, but how, you know, how does someone uh, become that? Because you have to be incredibly decisive and really clear in your vision to be able to portray all of it in the way he did in this movie. I that I mean that's what we all aspire to. Right. I mean, he, in that sense, he knows he's got his own, um, you know, sort of sensitivities about things, right? And vulnerabilities, and maybe because he comes from a the, the theater mm-hmm. background, mm-hmm. and he doesn't, you know, there nothing is slippery. You know, right. everything is like he he must have been such a great director to work with because when you look at the scenes everything is so incredibly clear cut mm-hmm. you know and you know what each person wants i mean maybe not as much with the Catherine Ross character you know she's right. just this beautiful fawn mm-hmm. um but they just gave themselves to him completely mm-hmm. and everything within the film is just so confident i mean that's what i'm always you know, so it's the ease with watching it. And, and from everything I've always read about him, that's what he says. State your theme mm-hmm. immediately. Stick with your theme. Mm-hmm. Um, he, you know, he talks about like they there was this there's this prolonged scene later on in the bedroom where, um, you know, where she ends up. She says he says, can't we talk for once? Right. And he talks in the commentary about it was a very long scene. 
And he just thought it was brilliant, and he and Buck thought it was brilliant. And then in the playing of it, it just sat there and just didn't Went work, on. and they mm-hmm. cut it all up. And But that, to me, is, again, he just said, you know, he just knows. The minute you cut something away, it you know, you never put it back, and you just know. He just knows themes, mm-hmm. you know, going back to, I don't know, just, play, you know, classic literature he just knows the themes mm-hmm. and i i guess it's a big it's a it's a lesson in not being you know as i was saying before slippery just right. just knowing exactly but i i find it so hard as a filmmaker not to remake the graduate <laughs> you know because we everybody wants to make you know the you know the madman and we've said you know that you could do there's so you know there's so many homages yes to um to the graduate. I, I think it just came out at the right time with the right music, with the right cast and the right, the, the most brilliant, you know, director, production designer, mm-hmm. costumer mm-hmm. of all people. That whole time in making American cinema was really, was really great, you know, but they came from the theater. Mm-hmm. I think that that's what it is. That, that's, that's what I think about Mike Nichols yeah. and that doing these films was an expression of of bits, some bits that he did, some comedy bits that he mm-hmm. did uh, with Elaine May, but then also just you know classic uh, knowing structure you know. and storytelling, and yeah, that sort of thing, and and, and knowing what that is, and of course, yeah, and as I said at the before the casting of of Dustin Hoffman, I think is is a, is a touchstone in in terms of cinema, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. absolutely, so. Well, and it's that's been that. fascinating talking about it. Yes, happy 50th to the graduate. Um, gang, I want to remind you, you can buy Ileana's book, I Blame Dennis Hopper, now in a paperback and in bookstores. It's a great read. You should buy it. Also, check out our website, ilianaspodcast.com, and like us on our Facebook page. The website has Twitter contacts, Instagram, all that good stuff. So that's thanks right. for hanging out with us. And Thank we you. will see you next time. From producers Maria Menunos, Kevin Undergaro, Phil Svitek, and the entire Popcorn Talk Network, we would like to thank you for tuning in. For questions or comments, be sure to visit popcorntalk.com. I'm Sir Richard Wentworth, and this has been a presentation of the Popcorn Talk Network. The views expressed herein are those of the hosts only and do not necessarily reflect the views of the Popcorn Talk Network or its owners or principals.